Well, if you see a, a forest in Ethiopia, you know that there is very likely a church in the middle of that forest. This is at least what one ecologist claims in an amazing article that I read this past week. So ecologists in Ethiopia have spent the past decade on a mission preserving and documenting and protecting the unique biodiversity in pockets of forest that surround Ethiopia's Orthodox churches. And these are often referred to as church forests. These are small but incredibly fertile oases, which number around 35,000 and are dotted across the country. And they're some of the last remaining tall, lush, natural forests that once covered the entire country and, along with their biodiversity, have all but disappeared. When the country was nationalized under the influence of communism, much of the land, including the forest, was converted to farmland. And now only 5% of the country is covered in forest, which is down from 45% at the beginning of the 20th century. This is staggering. But the remaining 5% of the forest is made up, again, almost exclusively of church forests, The church to which more than half of all Ethiopians belong views the natural forest as a kind of overlapping space of heaven on earth where every creature is a gift of God and it needs its habitat. And so these church forests host evergreen trees and shrubs and flowering plants. They isolate carbon and conserve water and reduce soil erosion and provide natural medicine. And so For the priests and for the people of these churches, they provide shelter for buildings and space for prayer, for contemplation, and land that is an area for burial, to mourn that is beautiful. In other words, these church forests provide little pockets, pockets of life in the larger landscape of death. Now, this is no accident, and this embodiment of fruitfulness, that is, the fruitfulness embodied in these church forests, is nothing less than a distinctively Christian vision of what God has done in Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits, who died and rose again, and in whom God extends mercy to do away with our sins that lead to death. Church forests are an outflow of the cross and the resurrection. But how? How is it possible that what God has done on a cross and in an empty tomb, how does that lead to the vision of church forest in the 21st century in Ethiopia? Well, to ask this question is to bump up against a still deeper and more fundamental question, which arises at least for me, but I suspect for some of you, when we read Paul who says to us today, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, my faith is futile and we are still in our sins. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. So that that still deeper question for me is, well, why did Christ need to die and to be raised again 
in order to do away with our sins. Paul points to the reality of sin, that this is not an illusion, and then that Christ had to die and to be raised from the dead in order to do something about it. Why? Well, to be clear, Christ died for our sins, including mine and yours. But why couldn't God have just declared us righteous? Why couldn't he have just snapped his finger and fixed the problem? Why was sacrifice and resurrection necessary? In fact, Paul presumes that both were necessary. Otherwise, sin and death would rule the day, he says. Well, I would just submit that the answer to these questions that I've posed all turn on how we understand two concepts. First, the concept of justice, and second, the concept of mercy. And Americans love justice, don't we? We talk about justice all the time. We have tons of TV shows and movies oriented around justice, Chicago Justice, Justice League, True Justice. There's even a show called Kentucky Justice. We have a a television network entitled The Justice Network. Justice, it gets our attention. We love it. We even pledge allegiance to the flag, saying that we will be a country with liberty and justice for all. But if everyone gets justice in a world where all of us are sinners, that's a baseline assumption of Christianity, well, then that presents us with a problem, doesn't it? Because it is in the nature of justice for brokenness to be fixed. That is, for punishment to be meted out for wrong. And if something is wrong, then it does need to be set right. Our system of justice presumes this, doesn't it? Murderers must pay for their crimes. Abusers must be punished. Criminals cannot go on committing crimes. They're wrongs. They must be set right. Not just because of some arbitrary principle, but because justice demands it. The rules we teach our children presume this, don't they? I mean, kids can't do whatever they want. There are decisions that bring pain if you step out into the street without looking, right? We teach our kids to live in certain ways, to live in ways that bring fruitfulness and not death. And all of these different forms of punishment, all of these different forms of decision-making correspond to the nature of choices, punishment, to the nature of a crime committed, and all discipline is measured out to the degree of whatever wrong is committed. So if justice demands a punishment of some degree or kind, what degree or kind of punishment would it take to satisfy or to fix or to atone for or to make right the wrongs of the entire world for all time and all people, all civilizations and wars and abuse and white lies and more? Well, The demands of justice cut against those who have wronged us. And if we are honest, it cuts against us too. So who can exact justice for the entire cosmos? Well, mercy, on the other hand, is a concept that I want to speak to. And this is a concept that we love to love, but often hate or fail to give, right? Cultures consumed with justice often find mercy to be utterly 
confounding. Mercy means getting what we don't deserve. That's what mercy means. But what does it look like? Well, imagine that I find myself in a court, standing in front of a judge, and I'm convicted of a crime, and then the judge exercises mercy and lets me go. Then I haven't gotten what was owed to me, the punishment that I deserved. The judge exercised mercy. Mercy however, is always exercised at the expense of justice. For example, imagine if uh, you know, one of your, your kids were to intentionally plan out to throw a rock in my kitchen window and break it. I could choose to exercise mercy and forgive the child. But the reality is that someone still has to pay for that window. And in this example... I have to pay for it. As I'm the one who exercised mercy, I absorb the cost myself. Or maybe I make, you know, the parent absorb the cost. Either way, the child is not absorbing the cost. That would be justice, but it's not mercy. You see, mercy is the extension of forgiveness, getting what we don't deserve. Justice is the repair of the brokenness that has occurred. Mercy... It doesn't fix the broken window alone, but justice doesn't fix the child's heart alone. And understanding this is so important for us as Christians. Because in Christianity, God is both merciful and just. God exercises his mercy not at the expense of his justice, but precisely through his justice. In the cross, There is both forgiveness and mercy. And in the resurrection, there is the same. God extending mercy by paying the price for our sins that we could not pay for ourselves and God satisfying in himself the demands of justice for a world that has done much more than break God's window. God swallows up into himself, absorbs into himself death and shows it to be a farce through rising from the dead. This is why Paul can write, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, dying in our sins, that would only be justice, but not mercy. But in fact, God died in our sins and through the cross and the empty tomb showed his infinite justice and mercy to be two sides of the same coin. So how then should the church respond to this this gratuitous, overflowing, abundant love of God? Well, like Jesus, our response is to become first fruits, as we've heard about in 1 Corinthians 15. People who bear the fruit of the cross and the empty tomb to be people who live now, even on this side of death, as we will live then on the far side of death in the resurrection. Living now the resurrection life. The church is called to be like a church forest, an oasis of life in a culture of death, a culture bereft of both justice and mercy. It's not that there's no growth outside the church, far from it. Of course there is, but ultimate growth of life And life even beyond death 
is found in Christ alone, the only God who holds together both justice and mercy and the only God who has bled for us. And as we experience the life of Christ, even now, it is our call to embody it outside the walls of this building and inside our relationships with one another. And so this means that we go about God's work creating pockets of life in a world of death. This means that we create ecosystems, as it were, of justice and mercy, that is jobs and communities and schools and businesses where resurrection life is abundant, where our faith informs our everyday way of living. This means that as a people who have been shown both justice and mercy, that we are quick to extend both, that we are quick to pursue justice, to fight for justice, but also to be a merciful people. And so may we be an oasis where God's fruitfulness grows and is abundant here in the church and for the greater good of Nashville. Amen.